This is What Goddesses Watch, a film and TV podcast that takes a divinely badass dive into the feminine on screen. With me, Soma Ghosh, film critic and editor of the Demoted Goddess magazine. Welcome to the Asta Nielsen special, a fascinating character, bizarrely largely forgotten, the greatest of the silent film actresses. There is a season at the BFI Southbank in London running till mid-March, curated by Pamela Hutchinson, called In the Eyes of a Silent Star. But I'll also mention at the end other places where you can snuggle at home and watch some of these films in which you'll see audacious technique, a woman who challenges gender norms and who was so famous in her own time that she was called simply the Aster, the Aster, with her photograph pinned up by soldiers on both sides of the First World War. Greta Garbo, who worked with her, said that given Aster's range and versatility, compared to her, I am nothing. And when we look at Aster, and of course, looking is very much what we do when we watch silent movies. The face, the gesture, the body becomes all important. You find not a conventional, dreamy poser, um, a pretty, tormented waif, like you see in so many of the very simple, melodramatic, silent movies, but instead a glowering vivacity like a tiny midnight sun. And although the BFI season talks is, is named after her eyes, for me it's Asta's body that completely leaps out of the frame, the skinny dancer's body that is quiveringly, wildly alive. Like Dietrich, who made the Blue Angel as a mother at 28, Asta was a 29-year-old single mother when she made her debut in The Abyss. And her age shows the little double chin, the hard-working, wiry body, the bony, worn intensity of her. This is not a woman in first bud. And whether it's this maturity or life experience, given that she became a single mother at, at the age of 19, her characters typically... Um, are acted with grown-up nuance. There's also often, and certainly in the films which we're going to be discussing, an unapologetic willfulness about her characters. We'll see it in The Abyss from 1910, in The Black Dream in, from 1911. We'll also be talking about cross-dressing, androgyny and gender queerness in her films The ABC of Love and Hamlet. Going back to those first two films, The Abyss and The Black Dream, in which she plays a music teacher turned circus dancer in The Abyss and a burlesque horsewoman in The Black Dream. Um, these are roles of artists or artistes who exist outside the normal sanctions of society. And that was Asta. She chose characters with an unbounded sexuality, independent of society's disapproval. They choose their preferred man. Her characters have sex outside marriage. But at the same time, she doesn't fall into those stereotypes of the, the vamp uh, for example. So she falls in lustful love in an instant, or her characters do, but she's not incontinent, she's loyal, and even when other lovers might promise wealth or security, Asta clings to her instinctual preference. She might be judged a slut, but an honest one. Asta Nielsen redefined who and what a woman could be on screen. 
and in this she was helped by her partner and later husband, Urban Gad, director of The Abyss and of The Black Dream. You can compare their partnership and chemistry perhaps to Marlene Dietrich and von Sternberg who also made films that pushed at social hypocrisy around the sexuality of women particularly. In The Abyss, Asta plays a music teacher who catches the eye of the son of a vicar on the back of a tram and after uh, a quick bit of dating, we suppose, we don't, we don't get to see, is invited to stay with him and his parents in the country. While there, she sees the circus and in particular is struck, uh, literally she is rowed at by a cowboy who rides at her on, on his horse. And playing... Um, foreshadowing perhaps the male role in Marlena Dietrich's Blue Angel. She's completely smitten and sexually overwhelmed and rides away with him to what she hopes is her happiness but turns out to be exploitation, jealousy and despair. There are gaps both literally as the film has been damaged and in Astor's portrayal of this music teacher whose um, attitudes and, and responses often feel ambiguous but in fact ambiguity and a life beyond the plot is at the core of many of Astor's creations. When it comes to Magda we don't know what her usual routine is whether she is in fact perhaps an artiste, a musician, a dancer who is teaching to supplement um her work. We don't know from her behaviour on the back of the tram uh, where she demonstrates this rather flighty sexuality taking up with a stranger and whether in fact she relies on men for economic support. So there are gaps about the habitual morality and lifestyle of this music teacher Magda but there are also gaps around her great passion when it strikes and it does feel rather in the film that it it just strikes out of the blue and that's partly to do with it being underwritten perhaps in that area Um, but it is also to do with the way that Aston Nielsen portrays a woman who is simply tethered by her instinct, overwhelmed by sexual instinct, um, so that despite the behaviour of um, her lover, Rudolf, um, played by uh, Rud- um, by Paul Rumert, um with solid, beefy sullenness, and Robert Dinnison as Knud, um, Magda's fiancé, uh, is also uh, extremely credible with his soulful, Uh, worried face and his tendencies towards primness which of course leaves him completely helpless um, when Magda faces her ultimate disaster. So there are two men here and love triangles are a recurring theme in Astor's films adding to the ambiguity of her characters and also suggesting that it's it's honesty about a woman's sexuality, the complexity of it, that brings freedom not only for women, but for the world. All of this longing, um, this perversity, comes to a head in the visual climax of the movie. So this is, in some ways, it's it's a film that um, goes about it um, a satisfying headlong pace. You won't be bored watching it. 
but then suspends itself as if hypnotised in a dance scene so notorious that it got the film censored in Norway and Sweden and is often referred to in Asta Nielsen film history circles simply as the dance. The stage is literally swept clear since this is a theatre in which Magda and Rodolf are performing um, at the height of their work together at a time when their marriage is falling apart. It is swept clear for three minutes of a succubus scene in which um, Magda, played by Asta of course, um, lassoes and... Uh, grinds against her man in serpentine abandonment, um, which is also uh, from beginning to end um, energised by a malevolent triumph that, in fact, as we're shown, Magda is far from enjoying in her marriage. So it's a double fantasy for the woman and for the audience who see her in a particular way. With her skin-tight, silky dress over her shuddering flanks, she withdraws even here from the overt look-at-me, look-at-me um, vamp. And instead, there's a moment where she's grinding against her um, bound and indifferent cowboy where she doesn't care whether or not he's responding. It's the pleasure that she is enjoying. It's this... Um, woozy endorphin rush which is the only explanation for what Magda has done in her life but although the dance has become arguably the most famous scene from the abyss it's packed full of fascinating painterly sick um, scenes I say sick scenes because I'm I'm reminded of um, one of my favorite scenes is of the drunkard cowboy and his friends drinking at Magda's expense in an outdoor cafe under uh, a, a spring or summer tree and it's like a sick Monet and indeed you could say that the dance as well you can see the dance as uh, being influenced by Toulouse-Lautrec. Um, throughout the film we we see a woman who is driven by instinct, who is bound by instinct, um, who moves from outright, forward-moving, open, um, lustful revelry into uh, a, a terrible, a terrible trap, and. And although the film might ultimately be best described, or I would describe it as a successful portmanteau of fascinating scenes, it is Astor's depiction of abandonment, of total abandonment, whether to erotic pleasure or to despair, that makes you understand how Apollinaire could write of her in this film, that she is the drunkard's vision and the hermit's dream. In the following year, The Black Dream was released, and it's a much more successful narrative. It's a, it's a more whole film, if you like, um, but it's interesting to note that um, despite that and the tension of the plot, which is perfectly satisfying, it somehow doesn't quite um, touch the, the weird inner feelings of the abyss, even though those are half seen. The Black Dream is a melodrama based on another vicious and finally murderous love triangle. So we have 
uh, Astor playing Stella, a uh, great circus performer who is pursued by two men, one a young count to whom she gives herself, the other a lascivious and um, sexually aggressive older jeweller who finally sets a trap for the two lovers. The lovers are portrayed as ardent but not innocent and uh, similarly with the character of Hirsch, the jeweller, um, who could easily have been played as a pantomime villain, especially given that, unfortunately, there was a fair amount of rapey frisson in the silent movies and indeed in Oscar Michaud's films um, like Body and Soul, actual rape. What's interesting about Astor's films is that though the woman often pays for the freedom of her sexual choice, the the power to choose and the power to say no are absolutely central, even though in this case Stella is forced to repay a, a debt that's been thrust upon her lover most unjustly with sex. And the forceful, vigorous elegance of Stella is what I remember from this film. She is every inch or um, fraction of an inch, her, her corsets and her, her waist is so tiny, um, every inch, the horsewoman, um, even when she sits making love, she sits slightly side saddle, cross-legged, tipping over. And we see her presiding over this demi-monde of artistes and aristocrats with the wry gaiety of, say, Betty Davis in All About Eve or so many of the later films of the 30s and 40s, which were about people of the theatre. In fact, um, Urban Gad was clearly a talented director who understood actors. Even the extras in this film, every character is relating to another, desiring, resenting, reacting. In short, acting, not miming, with vitality and fizz. And that's true of the ensemble throughout most of her films. I'd say that Asta Nielsen was remarkably uh, fortunate, although of course her talent also drew directors to her, who use framing that is very often harmonious, symmetrical, so these films are a real pleasure to look at and certainly would be wonderful to see in uh, in real life uh, in a in a cinema like at the BFI Southbank the sets of these films whether they are rural urban or domestic they're intricately detailed um they're you know you, you can sit and look at them in the way that you might you might look at a painting um but they're not flat because they constantly have a uh, a very dynamic use of space and that's amplified by a tendency towards brilliant lighting and at all of this all of this glitters around Aster so there she is in the in the center this glowering tiny midnight sun and she's particularly framed uh, in this romantic gracious way in the ABC of love which is a rom-com so we meet Liz the daughter of um, a wealthy chap with this with, with this house in the in the country, Liz is to be given in arranged marriage 
to a uh, charming young man who nonetheless, when he finally arrives, disappoints her ideal of the mustachioed Latin lover whom she's been ogling in her children's um, picture books. And after throwing a tantrum, and the whole film can be seen rather unnervingly perhaps as one long erotic tantrum, she decides to take this young man off to Paris where she will also be disguised as a man so that she can form and model him into the sort of Parisian rake she desires. So this is, if you like, a country house romance that gets rather bent with plenty of jazz spirit, with the jazz age's interest in androgyny and um, a forthright female sexuality. So perhaps more like a, a Fitzgerald, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, than the 19th century Jane Austen mode in which the film opens. And certainly with strong shades of the, the, the Weimar uh, Republic, um, and indeed just uh, flashing forward to Cabaret, um, you can definitely see Aster developing her decadent take on the existing cross-dressing vaudeville tradition um, and serving a mean Liza Minnelli impression before Liza Minnelli even existed in the Champagne Charlie theatre scene. She seizes the grotesque and clownish potential both of this energetically horny adolescent and of drag. But it might be said that the first few scenes of this film Film, um, Nielsen uses them to establish her sexuality as being not at all uh, typical of a romantic heroine. From the very start, she looks like a man in drag. She has virile eyebrows and thin muscular mouth, which is at odds with her coquettish ribbons, coils and hair coils and her and her and her dresses of pale lace and chiffons and florals and throughout the film whether she's cuddling a puppet doll or stomping around as a bourgeois country gent tourist in a in the Parisian hotel where she and her fiance stay she's not afraid to look ugly or ridiculous and this makes the sexual impulses of this horny adolescent riveting to watch as she grabs her fiancé, snogs and slobbers. Um, but also it's once they get to Paris that I was laughing out loud, which is quite something for a film without um, dialogue. As Liz takes her shy but not unromantic fiancé to swirl about the town as a pair of rakes, a kind of mustachioed, debonair, devil-may-care, dirty bastards that she, for some reason, fantasised about. Um, maybe because she was just locked up for, for years with a dog and a puppet, and you know what happens when, when we do that. Um, she um, goes about dressing up as a gent as a waiter as a country gentleman as uh, she takes on various guises both to accompany her fiance and to gull her father who turns up and is suspicious about what's going on the source of the co the cross-dressing is a great source of comedy whether it's um buttons that she has to pop between her breasts whether it's curtsying instead of um bowing 
Now, these are gags, which obviously could be a bit creepy and misogynistic, given that they rely on the machinery of our bodies for comedy. But Astor goes at them with such vigour, like a Charlie Chaplin on speed, that she overturns any um, snickering and uh, and also um, shores it up with the inveterate androgyny of this character that we've seen from the very beginning, as I said, when she's in her jasmine bower, looking rather like a man in drag. Uh, We also see her getting eagerly flirtatious and drunk with women at the theatre until she ends up with more woman flesh on her knee than she can carry. Of course, the patriarchy can't really cope with a woman flitting between genders and so she has a comeuppance when the father figures out what she's been up to and hatches a plan with the fiancé, saying now we will show her that we are men and teach her a lesson. She is unmasked when Liz, masquerading as a waiter, comes across her fiancé apparently getting it on with another broad who's patently to everybody else but Liz, a man in drag. And so the tables have been turned by her father and her fiancé and patriarchal order to some extent has been restored. But what are they going to do about that sexual energy of Liz's? And the very first thing that gives Liz away to her father is her pet dog who comes sniffing after her as she is presenting as a man. So it's the whiff of woman that brings her down. And the question of instincts, whether male or female, are very much at the heart of Astor's 1921 Hamlet, which she made with her own production company. And in this story, Hamlet is born a woman who is um, given a masculine sex in order to save the Danish crown when his father or her father is wrongly declared dead in battle. Um, And the father returns to love and raise Hamlet only to be killed by his devious and lustful brother and his wife, Hamlet's mother, provoking the need for Hamlet's revenge. Hamlet is in love with Horatio, his best friend from university. And this is really the, the hot molten core of Astor's portrayal of Hamlet, this gender bending tragedy is what makes Hamlet so unpredictable. Hamlet woos and seduces Ophelia in order to keep Ophelia and Horatio from getting together. It is still a revenge tragedy as in Shakespeare's version, but states at the opening that it's drawing its story from the myths behind that version and also from a book by one Yale professor, um, Vining, who wrote in his book, The Mystery of Hamlet, The Old Problem, that we could understand Hamlet better if we accepted that Hamlet was a woman. And of course, to us now, it might seem beside the point, uh, the question of Hamlet acting according to his gender or not. But it is interesting that Hamlet is, of course, one of the roles, perhaps because it is arguably one of the greatest of Shakespeare's roles, that has been repeatedly played by women. Fanny Furnival was the first female Hamlet, as far as we know. That was in Dublin in 1741. And the line of female Hamlets includes, of course, Sarah Siddons, Sarah Bernard and Garbo. 
But Aster is not just a woman playing a typically male role. She is a woman who is playing a woman who is performing a male role, who is hidden within this outwardly male body. And this hiding and this pressure and this movement between the genders is what gives her Hamlet an erotically charged quality. So um, bringing death and lust um, and revenge very close together. So in a scene like um, the player's scene where Hamlet brings in uh, theatrical performers to replay the murder of his father and catch Claudius out. Aster is writhing and crawling delightedly in with grim, malignant, eroticized glee towards Claudius. She's hungry for his secret to be out, obviously reflecting her own need for her secret to be out, a secret that sickens and sickens her throughout the film. And typically in her physical gestures, um, she uses her whole body to emulate the asp that Claudius used to kill her father and to express this poison within herself. And I suppose if you think back to the 16th and 17th centuries when um, when Shakespeare was writing and then when audiences were seeing Hamlet, the expectation was for a man, for a prince, to get on with it and do the killing and avenge his father in a revenge tragedy. So one can understand that perhaps there was a perplexity. And it's a problem that Aster here approaches in a different way to the ABC of Love or the other rom-coms that she did um, cross-dressing. In the ABC of Love, the tendencies that are typically seen as masculine, the sexual avidity, the forthrightness, are encapsulated early on, as I said, as she appears a bit like a, a boy or a man in drag. But here, Hamlet doesn't choose to perform a gender in order to secure the object of his love or her love. Instead, he is given, he is assigned a gender, if you like, at birth by his mother and taught to secret the, um, the, the true nature of his sex. And we see Aster... Um, as Hamlet, really as a boy, um, there isn't the there isn't that sense of um, the carnivalesque which there are, which there is in in her pants films, and which were which was more in keeping with the vaudeville music hall tradition of good old family fun of somebody pretending to. Um, of the other gender, you know, something something a little bit fruity on a Sunday matinee to have a giggle over and a joke that you're all in on. No, Hamlet's gender is his secret and his burden. Much as the clash between Hamlet's royal status and his duty as a prince and his philosophical nature are burdens in Shakespeare's play, here the mystery of gender, the discovery of it, the tender um, stirrings of it are what Hamlet is contending with, which makes for a really interesting twist on our known story of Hamlet. And because the audience is in the know, I think we borrow into the tension between Sven Gad, who's the director. Gad's 
um, mounting of scenes that are almost garrulous with visual detail, whether it's the, um, the, the bluntness of the violence and um, corpses on the, the battlefield, which is all very rough and ready, or the wedding banquet between Hamlet's devious mother and his uncle Claudius, which is like a scene from Bosch. There's a tension between those kind of scenes of life at, at Elsinore and hints of its, of its carnality, and as well as its graciousness, and the tender alcoves of Wittenberg. Here at the university, Hamlet is in the company of other young men, with uh, Fortinbras from the Prince of Norway, with Laertes, who will become his enemy, ultimately the son of Polonius and of tragic, um, the brother of tragic Ophelia, and of course his best friend Horatio, with whom he falls tenderly in love. And this place, Wittenberg, is wonderfully constructed within this film as a place of interiority and retreat and even when um, the students are mucking about in the lecture hall they're they're shielded almost within this stony um, insulated womb and it's a place where the atmosphere is naturally homoerotic and even though there is a gender reveal I won't spoil the end of the film um, and you should certainly go and see it live if you get the chance um, yeah so even though there is a gender reveal it's not to a plot effect it's uh, not for tragic effect it's not for comic effect it is not to win the boy or win the girl and so when Aster as Hamlet is wooing Ophelia we simply see the evolution of Hamlet from being this gangly um, idealistic boy which he is all the way through from the start into this more circumspect gracious courtly man. The suggestion is that the homoerotic state is the natural one that um, we can have gender pinned to us whether we like it or not. And in this case, it is something that Hamlet doesn't particularly welcome. As he says, I am not a man and must not be a woman. When she's wooing Ophelia, our awareness of her hidden sex shades the scenes into um, heterosexuality and homosexuality. And when she's with Horatio, uh, often framed in a typical romantic medieval pastoral collapsed for example on a on a mossy bed in the forest one upon the other um they just seem to be two boys in love and those two boys in love seem to be beyond sex like hamlet and horatio in shakespeare's version there's a spirituality to their connection even though the the passion causes hamlet such agony that she contemplates suicide and indeed her feelings for horatio and her utter revulsion for claudius uh, are the two great drivers in Aster's portrayal. It's when she is confronting Claudius and her mother that we see the aversion and recoil more typical of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Spite was something that Aster was very good at suggesting, and her Hamlet is a, a lean, angular, spiteful figure at these times. 
when she's on the warpath of vengeance, she ricochets between being a, a spry and deadly venomous figure to being bilious with guilt, with rage, um, and with the impotency thrust upon her, it seems, of her own repressed sexuality. And in that mode, it might be said that Astor's Hamlet is one of the most malicious, sick and tricksy. But ultimately, because the closeting of sex and the diaphanousness of gender is so central to the plot and to Astor's masculine approach, sinuously worming between these layers of gender, that for all its passion and the nausea of selfhood and and volition, what touches me most about her portrayal is the reclusive Hamlet, the Hamlet who obviously is is very much um, not only in the closet, but to give us a Freudian reading of Shakespeare in his mother's closet, it's his mother's doing, Um, but one who conflates not just boy, girl, man, woman, but the deeper mysteries of sex, gender, selfhood and existence itself. And I hope you enjoyed that introduction to this astonishing artist. You can see the films of Asta Nielsen in the season In the Eyes of a Silent Star, curated by Pamela Hutchinson at the BFI South Bank in London um, until the 15th of March. And you can also find some of these films on YouTube and Vimeo. But the most fantastic resource which is available for you to stream online is Danish Silent Film. They are at stummfilm, stummfilm.dk and you'll find these films and some of these films and many more silent film wonders. And this podcast is typical of some of the feminist film history podcasts that are available, many more than are available just publicly, to our members on patreon.com forward slash whatgoddesseswatch. We'd love you to join us as a member. You get exclusive um, podcasts to boost your feminine multicultural film history. You get advanced listens, um, fabulous merch starring you as a goddess on What Goddesses Watch and so much more. Um, So join us on patreon.com forward slash whatgoddesseswatch or go to our page on rss.com. Maybe you might be listening on that right now and hit the donate button. This has been me, Soma Ghosh, for What Goddesses Watch, which is produced by me and audio produced by Creva Lavelle, with music by Penelope Traps. 